Good morning. I want you to know it's a real privilege for me to have the opportunity to be with you today. I'm grateful for your pastor and the privilege of being able to be here and, and preach and be in this spot that, that he occupies. I don't take lightly. And so it really is a privilege to be with you. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and find the New Testament book of Hebrews. And once you get to Hebrews, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Here in just a moment, we're going to take a peek at the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 7. Not only do I appreciate this church, I mean your pastor, by the way, but I sure appreciate this church. I appreciate the ministry that you have with our college students from the Baptist College of, of Florida. Uh, when I first went to the University of Georgia, can I get a witness? Hmm. When I first went to the University of Georgia, I was looking for a place that I could find that would be home for me as a church away from home and to find a place where I could grow in my faith and learn and I found a spot, and God met me at that church and did a work in my life as a college student. And I know, what, uh, I know what kind of ministry a local church can have in the lives of college students. And I just want to say thank you for what you do for the college students at the Baptist College of Florida and for the ministry that this church has to college students. And I want you to be encouraged. I want you to... To, to keep that up, and you don't know what seeds are being planted in college students' lives that are going to bear fruit one day in ministries as they graduate, some of them after eight or ten years after they graduate, <laughs> I'm just kidding, that's when they graduate and move on to the ministry that God has called them to do. And so thank you for what you do in the lives of our college students. Well, as we begin this morning, and we think about the verses in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to look at what is kind of a transitional passage in the book. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews, which I'll just tell you up front, it, I believe is the Apostle Paul. I tell you that because it's right. <laughs> and so the, as you read Paul's letter, his message... We're at a point in the book where he's transitioning. So he's been talking about one thing, the priesthood, this guy Melchizedek, which we don't know a whole lot about. And now he's beginning to transition into other concepts that he'll pick up next week, or Brother Michael pick up with next week as you get into chapter 8 and the chapters that follow. And so I love this passage that we're going to be looking at today at the end of Hebrews chapter 7. Next week, uh, I'm the oldest of three, and my siblings and I are going to take my mom. She had her 80th birthday last year, and we wanted to do something for her, take a trip with her. And so we asked her what she might want to do, and she said, uh, I want to go see the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. And we said, all right, we're going to do that, Mom. And so next Thursday morning, we're going to drive from northwest Georgia, and we're going to head up towards uh, uh, Kentucky, and we're going to stay, and we're going to take her to see the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. Some of you have, have been there, yes? 
Okay, I see a few hands. Um, but as I've been reading about the, the things you can do, and one of the things I've seen is they have in the Creation Museum a theater, and they give you 3D glasses, and you can go in and just see stuff that just leaps off the screen at you. Any of you remember 3D glasses? Ever been to a movie where you saw a th use 3D glasses? Well, I'm not seeing a lot of hands for anything. Y'all need to get out a little more. Um, and so I, I was intrigued to think about 3D glasses. And so I love history in general. So I did a little bit of research about the history of 3D glasses. So here's what I've discovered. 3D glasses first were invented or came about in 1838. An individual named Charles Wheatstone applied the principles of stereopsis, which is the ability to perceive depth. He, he applied these principles to create the first 3D viewing device. And it was called a stereoscope. Now, in that, that day, in the late 1830s, this thing was big. It was cumbersome. It's not like a pair of flimsy lenses you throw on uh, to, to watch a movie with, but it was a box you had to carry. Anyway, it was just, it was the initial origination of a 3D device. Well, let's fast forward now into the 20th century. An individual named David Brewster took that device and some of those principles and he streamlined a 3D concept. And so he created what was the first portable 3D device. It was uh, similar to what we would call binoculars. And so with these binoculars, you would be able to see things. Now, I know binoculars help you see things far away, but these, these binoculars with the specific mirrors and lenses allowed you to see things like they were right in front of you and almost like you could reach out and touch them. And so the, uh, the, as the technology developed, the first public 3D film was released in 1922. Any of you see that? Just kidding. It released in 1922. And so folks could go get these lenses and be able to watch a movie with these special glasses. Anyway, as, as, as you know, if you've had an opportunity to go and see a movie in 3D, you recognize the technology and what that allows you to do. I mean, things on the screen are like they're just right there in front of you. And you can reach out and, and touch them, or, or maybe something's trying to reach out and touch you, and you're trying to avoid that. But the technology allows it to almost seem like you're there and, and experiencing live what's happening. The focus, the purpose of 3D glasses was to create images that you could almost reach out and touch. Okay, so here... You say, why the history lesson? Because here's what's interesting to me about these verses at the end of Hebrews chapter 7. They provide for us a, 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 a type of 3D spiritual lenses through which we can reach out and see Jesus afresh and anew. And we take these verses in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to read them together here in a moment. 
And actually, we're going to take that concept, 3D, and we're going to see the three Ds in Hebrews chapter 7 that allow us to see Jesus afresh and anew. Now, see, some of you squirming a little bit. Let me just say from a professor's standpoint, when you hear 3Ds, some of you are wondering, has he seen any of my transcripts from when I was in school? I have not. So I want you to, you're you're safe at that point. But 3Ds from Hebrews chapter 7 that allow us to see Jesus afresh and anew. Well, let me begin reading. I'm going to begin reading in verse 23, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, which is verse 28. Now, many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as the high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Three Ds to help us to see the Lord Jesus afresh and anew. Well, before we study God's Word together, I'm going to invite you to join me for a word of prayer. God, I want to thank you for the the way we've been able to worship you this morning through song. I want to thank you, Father, for the opportunity to, to praise the Lord Jesus, the opportunity to lift our voices and to magnify his name. Thank you. And now, Father, thank you for this portion of the worship service when we have the opportunity to study your word together. Now, Lord, my prayer very simply is this. As we open your word before us, would you open our ears and help us to hear what you would say? This we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Three Ds. From these verses in Hebrews chapter 7 that are intended to help us see Jesus afresh and anew. What's the first D? Well, the first D is this, the distinction. The distinction. Now, I fully recognize that the fact that Jesus is distinct or Jesus is different is nothing new to you guys. As you have studied the book of Hebrews together with Brother Mike, week by week, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and section by section, you have come to recognize that Jesus is different. He's distinct from anything that the world has to offer. And one of the ways that the book of Hebrews makes us aware of the fact that Jesus is distinct is it tells us that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now, in Paul's day, when he was writing this book to encourage believers, 
He was trying to help them understand how Jesus is better than things the world in that day and age offered to them. And if we had time, we won't, but if we had time, we could go back and review some of the messages and some of the concepts that occur and appear in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is better than what? The angels. Hebrews chapters 2 and, and 3 and 4, Jesus is better than, than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than those Old Testament saints. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, which will kind of culminate today, Jesus is better than this guy named Melchizedek and his high priesthood, and Jesus is better than the Levitical priest, which is part of what this passage indicates for us. Jesus is better, better than anything in that day and age that could be sought. Well, that's not a bad message for us still in this day and age, is it? Listen, whatever this world offers in this day and age, Jesus is better. Whatever the world puts before us or says we should pursue or follow or bow down before or sacrifice to, Jesus is better. What a message still for us in this day and age. So Jesus is distinct, absolutely. But now these verses at the end of Hebrews chapter 7 indicate a specific way that Jesus is distinct. What is that way? Well, come back to the, the, the chapter. Let me reread verse 23. Hebrews 7 verse 23. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. They are prevented by death from remaining in office. So, right off the bat, in verse 23, we see one of the primary ways that Jesus is distinct. See, in the Old Testament, and even in the days of the New Testament, the Levitical priest had an issue. Uh, they died. They could not continue in office. And so, there was a consistent turnover and change in the Levitical priesthood. They could not permanently remain because they died. So the distinction of Jesus is highlighted for us in the very next verse. Look at verse 24. But because he, referring to Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Well, there's the, the distinction. The Levitical priest died Jesus is alive, hallelujah. And Jesus remains permanently a priest. Now, when you think about that term, the English word permanently, uh, the Greek, the underlying Greek term has a, a specific meaning. And so, in his commentary on the book of Hebrews, David Allen, speaking about this term permanently says this, it's better to take this word, which is an adjective, in a predicate relationship to the noun. <laughs> I have no idea what that means, <laughs> but I thought, well, it sounds like something a professor should say in a message. So you take, <laughs> you take that term permanently, and the Greek term that underlies that tells us this, not only does Jesus not lose his priesthood. He keeps it forever, 
and nobody else can take his place as a priest. Nobody else can take his place as a priest. He holds his priesthood. These other guys died, and there was a consistent change in the Levitical priesthood. But when Jesus came along, and he became a priest, he holds his priesthood forever and ever. Amen. He does not die. So there's the distinction. Now continue in verse 25, because this distinction now tells us something about Jesus as our priest. Let me read verse 25 again. Therefore, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Now, you guys know that when you see in Scripture the word therefore, that it's there for a purpose, right? And uh, you've been taught, maybe you've heard, maybe Brother Micah said, when you see the word therefore, you're supposed to find out what? What its purpose is. <laughs> Not what it's there for. Why is the word there? And so the word therefore is intended to show us a connection. It's intended to help us understand what's about to be stated or written is based on what has just been said. And so, therefore, in verse 25, alerts us to this. Based on what has just been written in verses 23 and 24, now there's a truth coming that we need to be, pay attention to, we need to be aware of, and we need to watch out for. Therefore, so what is that truth? Well, let me read again. He is able to save mostly. <laughs> uh, no, I hope your Bible doesn't say that. He is able to save three-quarters of the way. God, help us know. If Jesus saves, he saves completely. And we're told right here, he is able to save completely. I'm telling you, a statement like that, it calls a good Baptist want to have a charismatic fit. He can save completely. He doesn't save halfway. He doesn't save part of the way. He doesn't save based on our emotions. Well, golly, Dad, I don't feel saved today. I don't feel right. I don't feel like this. He can save completely. And if you know him here this morning, whether you're seated here or watching online, if you have come to profess him and give your life to him, and have made him Lord of your life, you have been saved completely, bless God. Absolutely, 100% from now through eternity. Saved completely. See, part of what distinguishes Jesus is his priesthood. His priesthood is permanent. It continues forever and ever. That distinguishes him from the Levitical priest that just died and had to be replaced, died, and had to be replaced, and died, and had to be replaced. His priesthood is permanent. Because his priesthood is permanent, he can save completely. Who does he save completely? Well, look at the next phrase. Those who come to God through him. Now, this portion of this verse makes very clear something we already know in general. There's only one way to God. Right? Gee whiz, I thought I would hear one yes. There's only one way to God. 
So the Bible's not like a, a road map. Uh, if, if I had brought for il, il, uh, illustrative purposes a map of the state of Florida and opened it up, and I said, you know, okay, here we are in Chipley, and I'm trying to get to uh, Tampa. So we could look at the map, and we could see, well, it could go this way and go south here. We could go down by the coast, probably take a little longer, but maybe it's more scenic, whatever. And we could identify several ways to get from Chipley to Tampa, right? The Bible's not like that when it talks about the way to heaven. There's only one way for somebody to get to heaven. Jesus himself said, as recorded in John 14, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man. That, that means no man, no body. Doesn't matter if you're in Brazil, where I served as a missionary. Doesn't matter if you're in Israel, the continent of Africa, somewhere in Central Asia, no man comes to the Father but through Him, only Him. And so part of what Paul says here is based on the words of Jesus Himself. He can save completely whom? Those who come to God through Him. Boy, aren't you glad this morning that Jesus is distinct? from Levitical priests, from, from earthly priests. Jesus is distinct. Well, let's talk about the second D. The second D. Not only the distinction that Jesus is distinct, but now I want you to see what verse 26 tells us about Jesus. His description, the description of the Lord Jesus. Verse 26 says this, For this is the kind of high priest we need. And by the way, absolutely, that is right. Jesus is the kind of high priest we need. Now, after making that statement, the writer of the book of Hebrews gives us five traits or characteristics that are used to describe Jesus. So what are those five? Well, verse 26 says this, Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, if you'll allow me, I just want to take a minute and give a brief description of each one of those five terms. This first term, holy. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Uh, in the Greek language, there are two words that translate holiness. The word you see probably uh, uh, more often in the New Testament is a word that's pronounced something like this, hagios, hagios. And so you might see that word in the New Testament. You might see uh, hagios graphe, holy scripture. You might see hagios curios, holy Lord. Uh, you might see hagios mu, holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you don't see that in the Greek New Testament. That's a little... Okay, so this first term, hagios, is a Greek term that's intended to tell us something. Yes, absolutely. Is it de it, does it depict and describe holiness? Absolutely. But that's not the term that Paul uses here. Paul uses another term 
that talks about holiness, and this particular word is hosios. This particular Greek term talks about inner character. And so when the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that this priest, Jesus, is holy, part of what he's trying to communicate and express to us is that Jesus is sinless. His inner character, he's sinless. Well, the next word, innocent. Now, this particular Greek term is, is uh, very similar to what we might think of when we think of our Greek word, I mean our English word, innocent. It's just the idea that nobody can accuse you of something. Nobody can accuse you of wrongdoing or whatever the case may be. Which, by the way, happened in the life of Jesus, right? If we took time this morning, we could go back to the Gospels. And in the Gospels, just before the crucifixion, Jesus went through a series of trials, didn't he? And on a couple of occasions, they tried to accuse him of certain things. You can go back and read it, Matthew and Mark and, and Luke, and see the accusations that were leveled against Jesus. But even Pontius Pilate, as recorded in John's gospel, says, I, I can't find anything wrong. I can't find anything that this man has done wrong. That's part of the concept that's presented for us here, Jesus is innocent. What's that next word? Undefiled. This word very simply means free from evil. So the writer of Hebrews says this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled. This next phrase, separated from sinners. Well, by the time the in a practical sense, by the time the writer of the book of Hebrews was writing, Jesus was separated from sinners. He'd gone to heaven, right? He'd been raised from the dead. He had ascended and was seated at the right hand of his Father. Absolutely. And then that fifth descriptive phrase, exalted above the heavens. Don't you love this? Not only is Jesus in heaven, but he's above the heavens. He is exalted above above the heavens. We've got spiritual 3D glasses we're looking through this morning. And what we have seen is the distinction of Jesus. We have seen the description of Jesus. Now I want to invite you to join me as we head to the last D the design. See, all these verses in Hebrews chapter 7 are building up to indicate a purpose, to indicate and show us a design. And so the preceding thoughts lead us to a main concept that's given to us in verse 27. Well, what is that concept? Well, let me read verse 27 again. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. So here, here's, here's the flow of thought now. 
that leads up to and now includes verse 27, the flow of thought in this passage. Because Jesus is distinct, he's alive and he saves completely. Because Jesus, based on his description, is, is holy and innocent and undefiled and those five things. Because of this, Jesus can pay for all sins, for all time, for all people. All sins, all time, for all people. And by the way, the, the, the end of verse 27 says, in reality, he's already done that. He did this, the end of verse 27 says, once for all time when he offered himself. He offered one sacrifice himself. He offered it one time on the cross and that took care of it. Now, by the way, in reality, I recognize this is another distinction or another difference between the Lord Jesus and the priesthood. Because if we go back and reread some of the information in the Old Testament that we have about the priesthood, we recognize they offered sacrifices continually. They had to. They were working with Baptist people. <laughs> okay. No more jokes in church. And so he had, they had to offer sacrifices all the time. One time, Jesus offered himself. One sacrifice, one time, for all people, for all time. Now, I mentioned to you at, uh, during the introduction that part of, of what's happening in this passage is there's a transition that's taking place. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is moving us from dealing with the priesthood and going all the way back to chapter 5 when we begin to be introduced to Melchizedek and the issue of the high priesthood and now the Levitical priest we're beginning to transition to other themes and other topics in the book. And so beginning in chapter 8 and going through chapter 13, the end of the book, you're going to see other key themes from a theological standpoint that the writer of the book of Hebrews presents. One of those is this, which he introduces here. The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is sufficient. Aren't you grateful for that? To know that there's not anything I need to do. By the way, there's not anything I could do to earn my salvation. I don't need to do that. Don't need to try to do that. Don't need to, to, to donate more time to do this or, or, or give more for that or or be at church more, or whatever the case may be. I don't have to check off a list of do's to make myself worthy to be saved. In fact, we sing an old hymn from time to time that says, Just as I am without one plea. Man, I can come to Jesus just as I am. I don't have to do anything because he, he's done it. 
<laughs> one sacrifice, one time, for all people, for all time. He's done it. So, the sufficiency of his sacrifice is going to become a major theme in the book of Hebrews from chapters 8 through 13. You're going to see it. It's going to be touched on in chapter 8, but it's going to be more fully developed in chapter 9. In chapter 10, you're going to see further exposition and explanation. Anyway, it's going to become a major theme. Now, let me just highlight a couple of verses in chapter 10. Now, I know we're getting a little bit ahead, so when Brother Mike preaches this passage, y'all look surprised like you hadn't heard it. So in Hebrews 10, I'm just going to read a few verses beginning in verse 1. Hebrews 10. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Did you hear that? The sacrifices that were offered continually and continually year after year could not perfect the worshipers. Now, this leads the writer to make a very logical and astute statement in the very next verse. Otherwise, so if the sacrifices did what they were supposed to do, otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? I mean, from one standpoint, doesn't that make sense? If the sacrifices worked, if they did what they were supposed to do, then would, wouldn't, wouldn't they stop being offered? I mean, right? No? It just, yeah, it's a kind of a logical progression here. If the sacrifices did what they were supposed to do, they wouldn't have continued being offered. And then the writer continues in verse 2, so wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. Listen to this next verse. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And in reality, what animal could do for me what Jesus has done for me? What animal? What sacrifice is worthy enough to do for me what Jesus has done for me? And that's part of what the writer is saying there. And so you guys are going to be seeing this theme, this concept presented as you study the rest of the book of Hebrews, the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. One sacrifice, one time, for all people, for all time. A 3D picture, perspective of 
Jesus. These verses have allowed us this morning to put on a set of, of spiritual 3D lenses, and I hope to be able to kind of reach out and touch Jesus in a sense, to see him afresh and anew, to think about how he's distinct. Yes, his ministry, he's alive. He can save completely. His description, yes. Is he holy? Absolutely. Innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Yes, yes, yes. And, well, five yeses. <laughs> and then finally, the design for that. That he would not have to offer sacrifices continually because he's already done it. When he offered himself on the cross for our sins. A 3D perspective of Jesus. Well, here in just a moment as we conclude our Bible study time, I'm going to offer a, a word of prayer. After I pray... There will be a, a time of invitation. And during that time of invitation, I know Brother Bobby will, will be down front. And as God has spoken this morning, we invite you to be sensitive to his still, small voice. And maybe as we've studied God's word together, you've come to the realization this morning that you don't know the Lord in a personal way. You've not come to him and surrendered your life and given your heart to him so he could be your Savior and Lord. Maybe this would be the morning. You might come and take Bobby by the hand and say, you know, Bobby, I've, people have shared the gospel with me. Uh, I know people are praying for me, but I have not yet come to receive Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Boy, what a great morning for somebody to get saved. Maybe you know the Lord. You're here this morning, seated, or watching online. You know the Lord in a personal way. I mean, you can give an account. You know back however long ago it was, there is a distinct time when you invited Jesus into your life, when you surrendered to him, and you got, as, as we say, saved. But as we've studied God's Word together this morning, maybe you've, you've recognized as we saw Jesus afresh and anew, maybe your relationship with Him isn't what you would like it to be. And you might come this morning and tell Brother Bobby, would you pray for me so that I can make things right with the Lord? Actually, you don't even have to stop here. They're kneeling benches. You can just come and do business with Jesus yourself. However the Lord has spoken, however God's Spirit has spoken, the invitation time literally is that. It's an invite. It's an opportunity for you to respond to the voice of the Lord. Well, I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we'll have that time of invitation. Would you join me as we pray? Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to study your Word this morning. I want to thank you so much for the way these verses magnify the Lord Jesus. And Father, in the Gospel of John, we're told if, if he's lifted up, he will draw people to himself. And so our prayer 
is that you would draw people to yourself today, our Father. And so we offer the invitation time to give folks that opportunity to respond to that still, small voice. And so, God, as you have spoken, may your people be obedient. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.